This is my father's world, and to my listening ears, all nature sings, and round me rings the music of the spheres. This is my father's world, I rest me in the thought. Of rocks and trees, of skies and seas, his hands a wonders wrought. <clears throat> Jesus is all the world to me, my life, my joy, my all. My strength from day to day. Without him, I would fall. When I am sad, to him I go. No other one can cheer me so. When I am glad. He makes me sad, he's my friend. This is my father's world, oh let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is a ruler yet. This is my father's word. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied, and earth and heaven be one. Eternal life. Eternal joy, he's my friend. And it's uncustomary to speak after singing, but when you're singing a song and you reverse the words, there's nothing you can do about it. He doesn't make me glad. I said, when I am glad, he makes me sad. And that is clearly a mistake on my part. But when you're singing, you can't back up and do that. So I apologize for that. <laughs> we forgive you, Gary. We will you'll be flogged with a wet noodle. Thank you for your ministry. It's so humbling sometimes to serve sometimes to serve the Lord when you do your best and you still and you still misspeak. I never misspeak. I don't know what it's like to do that. All right, Matthew chapter 15 in your Bibles. Thank you congregation for your graciousness to me and all my misspeaking and your faithfulness and love for the Lord and your love for one another. Matthew chapter 15 is where we're at. 
So within the room today, we have people from all walks of life. We have people of different ages, different life stages. We have young and old, we have rich and poor, I suppose, from our own perspectives. Uh, many in the room this morning have put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. You know the Lord as your personal Savior. Um, he has forgiven you of all your sins, past, present, and future. And of course, the Bible tells us that we are all saved the same way, uh, by grace, the grace of God, through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. Uh, each of us have different backgrounds, um, different lists of sins that we've been forgiven of, and yet all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible, in the New Testament especially, but even in the Old Testament, we find people that we can identify with, can't we? We find people who Jesus saved that were poor, destitute, some beggars, blind, helpless, without hope, any hope of their lives ever changing, no hope of life after their physical life ended. We find the Lord also saving people who were wealthy. And we find people throughout the word of God, wealthy and poor, old and young, who God saved. And we come to Matthew 15, and there's an amazing story of a woman's faith. Uh, she was a mother. She had a daughter, and her daughter was possessed by an evil spirit. And in those days, there would have been no hope for her daughter being delivered from this evil spirit from this devil, as it's called in the word of God. I'm reminded of another passage of scripture where a father came to Jesus and he uh, strikingly described how the evil spirit would oft times drive his son into the waters to drown the boy. And oft times, many times that the evil spirit had driven his son into a fire, into the fire to burn the child. And you can imagine how that father, his desperation as he came to the Lord Jesus Christ, because there was no other, there was no other place to go. There was no other person to go to. And I, I've always pondered that father's plight because I imagine the boy had scars on his body from the many times that the father had to drag his son screaming in agony out of the, the, fly, the flames and the burns and scars that would have been on that boy's body. and I can imagine the father lunging into the pool or the river of water to drag his son foaming at the mouth out of the water, nearly drowning. And it would have been a terrible thing. Uh, this mother was in the same predicament. And this... Uh, Possession by evil spirits was something that was prevalent in that day because of the wickedness, because of the rebellion against God and against the truth within these pagan societies. But what strikes me most when I look at this mother is her faith. Now, the Bible says without faith, it is impossible to please God. And uh, the only way to please God is by faith. So I have a question. Well, what is that? What is faith then? I mean, if we're, if we're going to please the Lord, then we have to have faith. Um, but what is faith? Well, Hebrews chapter 11 says this in verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. 
Many of us can identify with that this morning. Um, the substance of things hoped for, that being uh, holiness, righteousness, victory over sin, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Even in our own lives, we've experienced that. Like, where's the evidence of the righteousness? There's evidence of unrighteousness sometimes, but where's the evidence of righteousness? And so he says it, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And then in verse 6 he says, but without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And for many of us this morning, that is why we are here. We are diligently seeking the Lord. That's why we're that's why we're here. Now we enjoy the fellowship and we're seeking to obey the commands of Scripture to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. So there's obedience involved and uh, maybe there's curiosity, maybe brings you here today. But for the most part, most of us are here because we are diligently seeking the Lord. But I would ask the question, how does God describe our faith? How does God describe your faith or mine? If, if he could speak to us today, uh, if he could speak to you and by name, and he said your name, and then he described your faith, how would he describe your faith? We have some who are old in life, lived a long life, and God has blessed you with that life. Others here are young. We have some maybe in junior high. Um, but nonetheless, if you're a saved person, or maybe you've never believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, how would God describe your faith? Because remember, without faith, it is impossible to please him. Well, let's look at the passage, and I want you to, as I read the story, and it's interesting, to say the least, what's really interesting about it is how Jesus responds to this desperate mother. That's what's so interesting to me about this passage is how Jesus, one of the things that's interesting is how he responds to her, or in fact, doesn't respond to her at first. I mean, if someone came to you and they were helpless, but you had the ability to help them, and they said, would you please help me? And they were sincere in their desperation. How would you respond to them? Well, let's look at how Jesus responds. Beginning in verse number 21 of Matthew 15, the Bible says, Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coast of Tyre and Sidon, and behold, a woman of Canaan, so a Canaanite woman, came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter, so this is a female child, is grievously vexed with the devil. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. But he answered and said, and said, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not meet to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. Now at this point, you think she's offended. Do you think she had reason to be offended? Look at verse number, verse number 27, and she said, Truth, Lord, 
Yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee, even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. And Jesus departed from thence and came nigh into the Sea of Galilee and went up into a mountain and sat down there. And great multitudes came unto him, having with them those that were lame, blind, dumb, maimed, and many others, and cast them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them, in so much that the multitude wondered when they saw the dumb to speak and the maimed to behold, the lame to walk and the blind to see, and they glorified the God of Israel. Notice that God was glorified in response to faith. And God is glorified today in response to our faith. You and I can glorify the Lord today, this week, when you and I walk by faith. Now, how did, how did Jesus Christ describe this woman's faith? I begin by asking you, how would God describe your faith? So I ask you again, how did the Lord describe her faith? Great is thy faith. Let's pray. Father, help us, I pray, this morning. Uh, you tell us if we have faith the size of a grain of a mustard seed, we can move mountains. Um, all of us lack faith. Help thou mine unbelief. And many of us could pray that prayer this morning. A lack of faith, which is sin. And yet a little faith, just a little faith, hardly visible at all, can accomplish so great things. Father, I pray that you would teach us by your word this morning, and I pray that you would grow our faith. You say that faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So as I preach your word this morning, I pray that your Holy Spirit would increase our faith for your glory, that we might please you. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, Jesus describes the woman's faith, and you got it right, as great faith. You see it in verse 28, uh, the middle part there. He says, great is thy faith. Um, Jesus only described faith like that one other time in the Bible when it was another Gentile, by the way, uh, the Roman centurion. Jesus described his faith as great is thy faith. And now, there are several character, uh, characters involved in the situation. We've got Jesus. He's involved in the narrative. We've got a mother, a Gentile, a Canaanite woman, a Canaanite mother. By the way, the Canaanites were cursed, and yet the Lord still wanted to save her, which is wonderful. You have this demon-possessed daughter. You have We have the disciples as well, and there's some other children around. Uh, where were Jesus and his disciples, and, and what were they there for? Well, look at verse number 21 again, and it says this, Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coast of Tyre and Sidon. Over in Mark chapter 7, a sister passage that talks about the very same event that was taking place. In verse number 24, uh, the Bible says this. It describes what, what they're there for. It says, But Jesus said unto her, Let the children first be filled, for it is not meet to take the children's bread and to cast it unto dogs. Um, uh, in verse 24, he says this, And from thence he arose and went into the borders of Tyre and Sidon, 
and entered into a house and would have no man know it, but he could not be hid. So Jesus actually in the passage is trying to get away from people, which is interesting. He's resorting. He's needing a time of rest. That's important, I think, for all of us to do on occasion. But so they're in the area of Tyre and they're in the area of Sidon and they're trying to retreat. And Jesus is trying to uh, get a break. Uh, for weeks, he's trying to get a break. From the ministry in Galilee, which is 50 miles on foot, he's trying to get away from the press of the multitudes. He's trying to get away from the hatred of the Pharisees and the scribes. I think he's trying to get away from the lack of perception of the, the disciples. He's teaching them truths, and they're just, not, they're just not understanding it. They're not comprehending it. And all of this was taking a toll on our Lord and Savior, uh, so let me ask you this question then. So what does God-pleasing faith look like? When I look at this lady's, this mother's faith, I think we see a picture of what God-pleasing faith looks like. And these characteristics of God-pleasing faith ought to be evident in our lives. Number one, faith that is pleasing to God has the right object. Faith that is pleasing to God has the right object. What is the object of your faith? Uh, what is it that gives you hope? What do you look for or look to? Who do you look to to give you hope? What do you look to to give you hope? What do you look to or who do you look to to, to find relief and rest, courage, strength, wisdom? Right. We, we can look to all kinds of things for knowledge or wisdom. Um, we can read um, we can watch podcasts, we can listen to podcasts, we can um, watch videos, we can read blogs, we can read articles, we can read journals. But do you look to that for your hope, your wisdom, your knowledge? Do you look to a person for your, for your hope or your rest or peace? Uh, who do you look to? Uh, what is the object of your faith? In God's word, tells us that we are justified by faith. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 11 that it's impossible to please God without faith. In 2 Corinthians 5, it tells us that we walk by faith and not by sight. In Romans chapter 10, it tells us that with the man, or with the heart, man believeth unto righteousness. Look at verse 22 of Matthew 15. It says, And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me. O Lord, thou son of David, my daughter is grievously vexed with a devil. Who is the object of this woman's faith? The answer is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is who the object of our faith should be. The Lord Jesus Christ should be the object of our hope, of our assurance, of our faith. And so what is faith? Well, the Bible has a lot to say about faith. It speaks of weak faith and little faith and strong faith and abiding faith and continuing faith and bold faith and rich faith, obedient faith, steadfast faith, dead faith, precious faith, common faith, unfeigned faith, and working faith. And there are more, I imagine. The Bible says a lot about faith. I have a dictionary at home. It's about that thick. And it's uh, Webster's. Uh, 1828 dictionary, and I really love it. It's uh, it's one of the, it's probably the one of the books I treasure most out of my library, 
Webster, in his definitions of words, will often use scripture to define a word, which is we don't find dictionaries that way often anymore. How many of you get excited about dictionaries? Okay, so I'll just move on because you really don't care about it. Um, You can actually get an app for it for your iPhones. Okay, just saying. All right, if you're interested in Webster's 1828 dictionary. But he talks about faith. And uh, and the truth is that all of us regularly exercise faith. That is, I'm talking about common faith, as Webster defines it. In other words, we believe what someone else says. Um, You should go to such and such a restaurant and try their burger. They have a phenomenal burger. That's common faith if you listen to what I say about a burger and go there and try. That's common faith. Believing what somebody else says about something. Uh, Webster also defines faith as historical or speculative faith. And that's, he describes as the ascent of the mind to understanding to the truth of what God has revealed. Simple belief of the scriptures of being, of the being and perfections of God and of the existence, character, and doctrines of Christ found in the testimony of the sacred writers. This faith is little distinguished from the belief of an existence of the existence and achievements of Alexander the Great. Okay, what is he saying? He's saying this kind of historical or, or speculative faith is based upon knowledge, sometimes scripture, sometimes other things, but there's not a whole lot of difference between this kind of faith in Jesus living and dying and the kind of faith that it would take to believe that Alexander the Great lived and died, right? I mean, how many of you met Alexander the Great? None of us have, but why, why do we believe that he exists or existed? He doesn't exist anymore. Why do, why do we believe that he existed? Well, historical documents, we've been told that. I mean, that's what we, why we believe he existed. There's no other reason for that. Um, sometimes I'll talk to William about the greatest basketball that ever lived. And, you know, he really wanted a pair of Steph Curry's, you know. And, uh, and I'm like, well, Steph Curry's pretty good, but... I don't think he was nearly as good as Michael Jordan. He's a phenomenal. The game has changed. And William's just not paying attention to any of my conversation at that point in time. But so sometimes in conversation, he'll say, well, Michael Jordan was the greatest, right, Dad? Will has no basis for knowledge about that except for what I told him about Michael Jordan. That's historical. That's historical faith. That's speculative faith. But it's not saving faith. Just believing that Jesus Christ existed is not saving faith. There are many people in our day today who believe in God. Or will even say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. And it's a speculative, historical faith. It's in some ways common faith, but it's not saving faith. There's a difference between me believing in my mind that Jesus existed, and that he was a good man, and he was a good teacher, And maybe even he did amazing things. It's the difference between that kind of faith in Jesus and believing that Jesus Christ is the Lord and he died for me and he rose again and saving faith. There's a difference between these two kinds of faith. So Webster defines saving faith as the ascent of the mind of the truth of divine revelation on the authority of God's testimony accompanied with a cordial ascent of the will or 
approbation of the heart, an entire confidence or trust in God's character and declarations, and in the character and doctrines of Christ with an unreserved surrender of the will to his guidance and dependence on his merits for salvation. In other words, that firm belief of God's testimony and of the truth of the gospel, which influences the will and leads to an entire reliance on Christ for salvation. That came out of a dictionary. Yeah, wow. They don't have dictionaries like that anymore. I would ask you the question, though, do you, what kind of faith do you have? Do you have saving faith? I imagine I'm talking to some this morning, and you have speculative faith. Faith. You've heard about Jesus since you were a little guy. You know, you know, you believe. You would tell me, I I believe that Jesus existed. Yeah, I believe in Jesus, Pastor. But I'm not asking you if you have speculative faith. I'm asking you if you have saving faith. Speculative faith will send a person to hell for all of eternity. Speculative faith will leave you unforgiven of your sin, dead in your sins and trespasses. It will leave you in bondage, in slavery to sin. Speculative faith will stand you before the Lord someday at the great white throne judgment of God, which is not a place of reward, but is a place of damnation and condemnation forever. So speculative faith may be better than what most of our society would say today. I don't think most of our society today would say they believe in Jesus. So speculative faith, you might say, well, I'm better than most. But speculative faith is not saving faith. And when I look at this mother, I find saving faith. Faith is taking God at his word. So who should be the object of our faith? And the object of this woman's faith, this mother's faith, was the Lord. What is the object of your faith? What is the object of your confidence? What is the object of your trust? This mother, the Bible says, cried unto him because she believed that Jesus alone could save her daughter. What is the object of your faith? Have you ever heard someone say, well, I have faith in myself? Or maybe you've heard someone say, I'm a believer. In what? In who? Faith is not a shot in the dark. Faith is not positive thinking. Faith is not a, well, I hope so. It isn't my best try or effort. Jesus was the object of this woman's faith. Now, this woman was from Phoenicia, and pagan idol worship would have been the norm in Phoenicia in those days. She was from Tyre, Sidon region uh, in Phoenicia. The false gods of Baal and Ashtaroth would have been worshipped there. They had their beginnings in that region. Idolatry would have been what what this mother knew. This is what she knew, idolatry, worshipping other gods and other idols, and she would have been raised with it. It was the culture in which she, w- she lived. And I imagine that she had already tried what she knew. I really believe that. I believe she had tried everything at her disposal. I believe what she, she tried what she knew. 
Tyre and Sidon of Phoenicia was an affluent place. I believe this woman was wealthy. Mark, in his description of this mother, describes her in such a way that would lead us to believe that she was wealthy. She was a woman of distinction. And it's very likely that she had tried everything else. Maybe the Greek doctors, perhaps the pagan priests, perhaps the false gods. And maybe you've tried everything else too. Maybe you've looked to alcohol. Has it saved you? Maybe you've looked to drugs. Has it delivered you? Maybe you've looked to entertainment. Maybe you've looked to people. Maybe you've looked to uh, hobbies. You know, what, what, what is it? What is the idol? What is it? Uh, I jokingly have told you in the past and years ago when Cindy and I uh, and our children first came here and I became the pastor of Trinity it would be almost 10 years ago now. And uh, I was 33. That was young. And uh, but I can remember and some of the stresses of the ministry would, would, would come and go. And and Cindy would always know when I was stressed because I would be bought things. You know, and Amazon was amazing at satisfying for a moment, saving. But what do you look for? What do you look to to give you some relief and, and make you feel successful? Um, what is what is the idol? I imagine she she tried all of these different things. And in our text, we see that her faith found a resting place eventually in the right one. Acts 4 and verse 12 says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Faith that is pleasing to God always has the right object. If you're a saved person, we are commanded to walk by faith after we are saved. Colossians 2 tells us, as ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. The very same way that you believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ and he saved you from your sin is the very same way we are supposed to walk on a daily basis, taking him at his word, believing what he tells us, putting our trust and our confidence in him. So faith that is pleasing to God has the right object. Secondly, faith that is pleasing to God includes repentance. It includes repentance. Look at verse 22 in chapter 15. He says, And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast, cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me. What does it mean when this mother of uh, Syrophoenicia cries out to the Lord, Have mercy on me? What does a cry for mercy mean? Have mercy. Mercy is not receiving what we deserve. Have mercy. (laughs) Don't give me what I deserve, is what she was saying to the Lord. If a person cries out for mercy, they're not asking for justice. You notice that. She didn't say, Lord, be just with me. How many of us at times cry out for justice? We think justice needs to be done. And by the way, God is a just God. Okay, so that is a good thing. Justice is a good thing. But how many of us are glad that God was merciful, full of mercy with us? Yeah. And not just one time, but over and over and over and over again. God has been full of mercy with us. 
And so this mother's not saying, I'm worthy of you healing or delivering my daughter from this evil spirit. She's not saying, I deserve this or that I should receive this. She's saying, in essence, when she cries out, have mercy on me, she's saying, I don't deserve that you would deliver my daughter. By the way, parents, that's how we ought to pray for our children. Lord, would you please help my son? Would you please help my daughter? I don't deserve your help in this matter, but God, would you have mercy upon me? Would you have mercy upon my children? We ought to pray that way. But I'd not come to God with the attitude of, I've done all this for you, and you should do this for me. That's not humility. That's not the way to approach the Lord. So the person seeking mercy understands that they're, uh, they're not entitled. It is impossible to turn to the truth without turning away from lies. It's impossible to turn to Jesus without turning away from self. And this mother is doing that. She's repenting. She's changing her mind about who Jesus Christ is. Repentance is turning from sin to God. It's turning from idols to the one true God. Paul reminded the Thessalonican church of their testimony in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9, where he said, Ye turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. He reminds them there was a time in your life where you turned away from your idols and you turned to God. And that is the moment that you trusted Christ. That is the moment that God saved you. For this woman to have faith that was pleasing to God, it required that she turn away from the false gods of her people and her country and her culture. Do you remember Israel had a problem with Baal worship? In fact, Baal worship had so polluted and so corrupted the northern kingdom of Israel, that God had removed his hand of protection from them. And in 722 B.C., they were taken into captivity by the Assyrians, and they never recovered. God's people had left him for false gods. That happens sometimes in our day. Sometimes God's people leave him for false gods. But when I look at this passage, you know what I see? I see a Gentile woman, a Canaanite woman, a woman who was accursed by God, turning away from her idols and turning to God. Last night, a couple, I prayed to, had a chance to pray with a couple of my children for the services today. And, uh, and they, William asked, he said, well, Dad, so what are some things we should pray for? And I talked with them about some of the things that we could pray for, for the congregation today as we gathered under the word of God and what we needed God to do in our midst, because there are things that I cannot do that only God can do. We prayed for your response to the word of God as it was preached this morning, because the truth is every single one of us struggle with idolatry. There's a battle in our hearts for who we're going to worship. Our world has made their decision. They are not going to worship God, but yet we live in a time where God can still save and he can still deliver. But there ought to be amongst God's people a turning away from idolatry. This woman was forsaking her false gods for the truth. She had changed her mind about her idols. I'll give you a third, a third thought about faith or third description of faith. Number one, faith is pleasing to God. Faith that is pleasing to God has the right object. 
Secondly, faith that is pleasing to God includes repentance, a turning away from idols to God. Number three, faith that is pleasing to God is reverent. It is reverent. Look at verse 22 again. He says, And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David, my daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. So he, she describes him as Lord, thou son of David. And she's giving him tremendous reverence here. I'm talking, what are we talking about? This isn't just a story, remember. We're, 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 we remember that God is pleased with faith. Jesus described this woman's faith as great faith. So when I read about this, I think, okay, God is pleased with faith. Jesus described this woman's faith as great faith. I want to know what kind of faith she had. Because I struggle with faith sometimes. I struggle with unbelief sometimes. So it is. it has the right object. It includes repentance, turning away from idols, turning to the Lord. And it includes reverence. Reverence. And I asked myself the question this week, how reverent am I when it comes to the Lord? Do I have reverence for him? Do I revere him? Reverence is fear mixed with respect and esteem. Do I have a fear of God with an awe for him and esteem for him? Do I esteem him highly? Or is he just, do I just fit him into my life? You know, I've got these things I need to do. I've got some hobbies, got family, got work, and God's there and church is here and just kind of fit him in. Do I revere him? Do I, am, I in awe, am I in awe of him? She had a fear of God. She repeatedly cries out, have mercy on me. She says, help me. This, this Gentile mother understood that Jesus had the power to give her mercy. And he had the authority not to. And whatever he decided would be right. She, she, she understood that. She had a fear of God. And God is full of mercy, the Bible tells us. Uh, she had an acceptance of who Jesus Christ was. She, she, she acknowledges his title, Lord. Do you see it in the passage in verse, number, verse 22? She says, have mercy on me, O Lord. And, and the word Lord is the Greek word kurios, um, which means supreme authority. She's not a Jew. She's not from Israel. She doesn't, she's not involved in Judaism. She doesn't go to the temple to pray. That's not who she is. That's not her culture. She's heard about Jesus. She's heard about some of the things that he's done. That's why she's come to him. But when she comes to him, she acknowledges him as the Lord, supreme authority. You, God, you can do what you want to do. And I'm asking you for mercy. And I'm asking you for help. And I have a daughter who's possessed by an evil spirit. And I've done everything I possibly can do to help my daughter. And I can't do it. And again, I say to you, I think she's gone to her pagan priests. And I think she's gone to everybody she can. She's tried everything she can. She, she doesn't have it in herself to save herself, to save her daughter, to save her family. She calls him Lord. She calls him thou son of David. What is that? Well, that's a title. 
and it acknowledges that Jesus was the Messiah of Israel. Now remember, the religious leaders of Israel are talking with Jesus, and they don't see it. They're growing to hate him more and more. Um, thousands of people are hearing Jesus speak, and yet many of them are not coming to this conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one of Israel, the son of David. But she gets it. And she worshipped Jesus as the Lord. Jesus wasn't just another one of her gods. He wasn't like anything else or anyone else that this woman had tried. She's approaching Jesus as omnipotent, all-powerful, curious, Lord, supreme authority over heaven and earth, and the messianic king. She's approaching Jesus as deity. Now, this is, this is amazing because there were other people who would look at Jesus and someday they would shout, crucify him, bloody him, beat him, flog him, strike him, pluck out his beard, hang him on a cross, mock him, take his name in vain, but not this woman. No, not this woman. She had faith, saving faith, delivering faith. And notice that this kind of faith leads to genuine worship in God. Look down to verse number 25 in Luke, or Luke, uh, Matthew chapter 15. Look at verse 25. The Bible says this. Then came she and worshipped him. That word means that she uh, prostrated herself before him, saying, Lord, help me. She worshipped him. Hey, we need to come to worship him that way. When we come on Sunday morning, we ought to come that way. We ought to come with an air of, Lord, help me. Man, we ought to come that way. Lord, help me as a man. Help me. And you, I don't, do I have to go through, through a list of things that we as men need help with? Lord, help me in these areas. Moms ought to come that way. People who are older ought to come that way. Young people ought to come that way. When we come to worship the Lord, to, to ask him, help me, and not just on Sundays, but throughout the week. You see, this is faith that is pleasing to God. This is reverent faith. There's also persistent faith. Look at verse 23. There's persistent faith. Faith that is pleasing to God is persistent. Uh, one of the evidences that we're taking God at his word is our persistence, our pursuit of him. I've, I've watched over the years, I'm not that old, but 43 years old, and I've watched people who name the name of Jesus Christ as their Savior. I've watched some people persist in following Jesus throughout their lives, through cancer, through death, uh, through difficulty in training up their children, through, through opposition, even within their home, within their marriages. I've watched God's people follow the Lord and persist in following Christ over these 43 years. I've also seen people who named the name of Jesus and said, yes, I'm a, I'm a Christian, turn away from him when hardships come to. And I ask you again, what kind of faith do you have? What is the object of your faith? Does your faith include repentance? Are you reverent in your faith? And are you persistent in your faith? I notice, first of all, look at verse 23, that Jesus doesn't answer her. This is amazing to me. Look at verse 23. 
But he answered her not a word. She comes to him in verse 22 and she's crying out to him, Have mercy on me, O Lord. There's this reverence, there's this worship, thou son of David. She's got a a, a tremendous plight. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. I mean, she knows who he is, and he knows that she knows who he is. He's just left. If you read earlier in the chapter, he's just walked away from a bunch of Pharisees who are angry with him about the most ridiculous things, who do not believe in him, who are rejecting him. And here he finds a woman who who chases him down, who comes to him and is pleading with him as the Lord of heaven and earth to please help her daughter. And Jesus doesn't answer her. Why would Jesus do this? I believe he did this because he's allowing us to see what true faith really looks like. Maybe you have felt that the Lord is not answering you. Maybe you have prayed and you would say, Pastor Ferguson, I've gotten no answer. Maybe there are times, there are times in our lives where we feel far away from the Lord. We feel that he is far away from us. Sometimes we feel alone. And we see what faith that pleases God is. It is persistent. Now, obviously, we know that this woman had heard things about Jesus. That's why she's with him. Perhaps she had traveled down to Galilee herself and had witnessed his preaching and healing. Maybe she had heard the testimonies of those who had been healed by Jesus. Like, well, he always speaks speaks the truth and he, he made me walk. And another might have said he healed my leprosy. Others might have said he's so loving and he's so kind. He's so compassionate. You can see it in his eyes. And so now she's here. She's come all of this way. She pleads for his help. And he won't answer. What would you have done? How would you respond? How would I respond? His disciples step in. Look at verse 23. Look at they they didn't want want, uh, Jesus to have anything to do with her. Look at verse 23, the latter part. But he answered her not a word, and his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. And the word crieth there means to scream or to call aloud. So the disciples come to Jesus, and they they beseech him. Send her away. Send her away. Lord, send her away. She's just screaming, and I think uh, she was. I think she was screaming. I mean, you think about this. She's come all this way. She's tried everything else. She believes that he can. (laughs) And she is persistent. She's not going away. She's not going to stop asking the Lord to do what he desires to do. And you and I can learn from her in this. We, we, We must be persistent in our faith. And notice, though, Jesus' answer now wasn't what she thought it was going to be. Look at verse 24. This is amazing. But he answered. Now he answers. And what is he going to say? And he said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. What does he mean by that? He says, I'm sent to the Jews. 
Is this, is this the Jesus that you know? This is the Lord. What is he doing? He's revealing her faith to us. I'm not sent, but to the lost house of Israel. And so now she, he, Jesus doesn't answer her. And then his, those who are closest to Jesus don't want him to do, have anything to do with her. And, and now Jesus answers, but it wasn't the answer that she thought she was going to get. Jesus says this, I believe, too, to help us all understand and to help her know that it has always been God's plan that, uh, that Jews and Gentiles be saved. Um, I think of Rahab. I think of the Ninevites. I think of the centurion servant. In Matthew 4, multitudes had come out of Tyre and Sidon and had been healed. The demons had been cast out. But why would Jesus say this? The answer is this. Jesus is saying that his plan is still on course. He hasn't turned his back on Israel despite their rejection to him, despite their hostility, despite their hatred, despite their bitterness and their murderous plot against him. He was going back to Israel to call them back to repentance and to call them to his kingdom. And he would do this right up to the very end. Israel was always God's plan. And Peter preached this message to the Israelites in Acts 3. He literally told them that they had killed the prince of life. He told them that. And then Peter reminded them that they were still, quote, the children of the covenant. You killed him, but you're still the children of the covenant. So God is still calling to them to this day. The plan was that God would send the Messiah to Israel and then through Israel the, the world would be reached. And so he's telling her the plan is still in place. I still have a plan for Israel. I want you to give one last thought this morning and faith that is pleasing to God is humble. God has no place for pride in our lives, friends. Pride. We hear the word pride and we're like, yeah, we all got it. It's one of the good Christian sins, right? In both James 4 and 1 Peter chapter 5, we are told that God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. Pride is the opposite of humility. And God's response to the proud and the humble, God responds to the proud and the humble in two different ways. To the humble, he gives grace. To the proud, he resists. Those who resist God, God resists. Those who submit themselves to God, God gives grace. It's very, very simple for you and for me this morning. God gives grace to the humble. In James 4 and verse 6, the Bible says, But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. In verse 10, he says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. In Matthew 23 and verse 12, the Bible says, And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. Humility acknowledges the need for mercy. Remember, she had cried out for that. Have mercy upon me, O Lord. This was a sign of her humility. Humility abstains from self-reliance and self-sufficiency. In verse 25, the latter part, she says, help me. She knew that she needed Jesus to save her daughter. And humility also avoids offense. Humility avoids offense. Look at the offense in verse 6. 
What could have been offensive and would have been offensive to most of us was not offensive to this woman. Look at verse 26. But he answered and said, it is not meat. It is not good to take the children's bread and to cast it to the dogs. Now, Jesus had taught in John 6. He said, I am the bread of life, and he that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. He said in verse 48 of John, I am that bread of life. He was the bread of life come to Israel. And what is he saying here in verse 26? It is not good for to take the children's bread, the Israelites' bread, and to cast it to dogs. Okay, the Israelites, who hated Gentiles in general, called them dogs. And it was not a compliment. Jesus says to this woman to add more of a test of her faith. He says, it is not good to take bread, speaking of himself, and cast that's meant for Israel and give it to the dogs. Now, is did Jesus intend to offend this woman? I don't think so. Jesus knew that it would not offend that woman. Okay. Was his statement offensive? Yes. Yes, it was offensive. Any proud person would have been offended deeply by what Jesus said. Any arrogance in her at all would have caused her to stiffen up her back and say, you know what, fine, I'll have nothing to do with you and go her own way. But this is saving faith. And saving faith requires humility. And she had no arrogance or pride in her at this point. And notice how she responds in verse 27. This is amazing. And she and she said, truth, Lord. Yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from the master's table. What humility. Now the Bible says next in verse 28. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee, even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. Mark records it this way in Mark 7, in verse 29. Jesus said this, for this saying, for her humility, in verse 27. For this saying, he says, go thy way. The devil is gone out of thy daughter. I'm telling you, listen, the humility that is a part of faith is absolutely necessary. In our lives, what is our attitude to what God is doing in our lives? For how God is responding to us as we seek him and pursue him. Is, are we offended with him? Do we stop following him? Do we draw back from him because he's not doing what we want on our timetable? Because that is arrogance and that is not faith. Faith is taking God at his word. Faith is accepting what God is bringing into our lives as being from him. Faith is accepting, God, you know better than I know. Your ways are higher than my ways. Your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. God, I will keep following you. I will pursue you. As as Peter said to Jesus, uh, where else should we go? We have no other place to go. You are the Lord. And that's where this woman was. You are the Lord. I have nowhere else to go. You are the Savior. So how's your faith? 
Faith that is pleasing to God is the right object. It includes repentance. It's reverent. It's persistent. It's humble. We're commanded to walk by faith and not by sight. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You see, all of these characteristics actually come by hearing the word of God. That is, by the way, why I want my children in Sunday school. That is, by the way, why I talk to my children about the word of God and and I talk to them about the word of God on a regular basis. That is why I want them in church. That is why they will be back tonight. That is why they will be here on Wednesday night. I want them with God's people. I want them under the word of God. I want them to please God. It's not a Christianity, uh, the Christ life. Pleasing God is not a bunch of rules and regiments and standards. That is not what pleases God. It is faith, and it is the word of God that produces it. These characteristics of God-pleasing faith. I'm going to ask you, as we close this this morning, if anyone here would say, Pastor Ferguson, with heads bowed and eyes closed, how many of you would say with, with, with heads bowed and eyes closed, Pastor Ferguson, there has been a time in my life where I exercise God-pleasing faith, saving faith, And by God's grace, he saved me from death and hell, and I praise him for that. If that's you and you're a saved person this morning, would you raise your hand that I could see it this morning? Many hands this morning. Thank you. May put them down. Thank you for your transparency with me. Is there anyone here this morning who would say, Pastor Ferguson, I couldn't raise my hand. I have never put my faith and my trust in Jesus Christ alone never turned away from everything else and turned to him alone for his salvation. This morning, I want to put my faith in Christ alone. If that's you this morning, you'd like me to pray with you about that matter. With heads bowed and eyes closed, would you raise your hand this morning and say, Pastor Ferguson, I want, I desperately need Jesus Christ to save me from my sin. Is there anyone like that this morning in this room? Heads bowed and eyes closed. Pastor, pray for me. I need to be saved. I need Christ to save me. Anyone like that at all? So to Christians, then I ask, how's your faith? Are these characteristics characteristic of your faith? Because this is the faith that pleases God. I've seen it in many of you. Many, many of you. I want to encourage you this morning. Keep walking by faith. Keep trusting your Savior, your Lord, your King. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us in this matter of faith. May we grow in our faith. And may our faith be pleasing to you. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Take your hymnals, if you would. Turn to hymn number 239. And I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet, hymn number 239. And I've asked Pastor Tolman to lead us in this hymn. It's a beautiful song about Christ. Sing it out as unto the Lord, as a testimony to him. Let's sing together.